Welcome to Saltgrass, a show about how local communities can engage with the climate crisis at a grassroots level. My name is Ali Hanley. In this episode, I'm sharing some audio that I recorded about a year ago. It is a continuation on the theme of money and localization of currencies. The last episode, for those who missed it or if you need a reminder, was a discussion with Anne Ferguson and Jody Newcomb and Dale Cox about their Castlemaine Currency Project. I highly recommend that you listen to last week's episode for context before listening to this one. The Currency Project was both an art project and a social experiment. And as part of the exhibition in the gallery at Lot 19 in Castlemaine, they held this panel discussion that you're going to hear today. Before the panel discussion began, we all watched a 20-minute segment of the film Tomorrow, which explored the idea of money and how local currencies could help mitigate some of the absurdities of our current global financial systems. So the panellists refer to this film a couple of times in the discussion, just so you know what they're referring to. People speaking in this episode are Warwick Smith from the Castlemaine Institute, Carl Fitzgerald from Prosper Economics, Marin Tinkle from the Mount Alexander Shire and Anitra Nelson from the University of Melbourne. You will have heard Warwick and Anitra both speaking before and both speaking about money and economies. Warwick spoke to us about his history as an ecologist and an economist and how those two things reflected each other in certain ways back in season one of Saltgrass and Anitra talked about degrowth near the start of 2021 and she has since published a book called Beyond Money which maybe will give you a clue as to the points she's going to be making in the panel discussion. This is kind of a bonus episode rather than a proper episode of Saltgrass so I'm not going to spend too long introducing it I'm just going to let you listen to the panel discussion but it's really just an opportunity to hear some more thoughts about what a local currency might mean what the implications might be and to hear from a bunch of people who think about these things a lot the discussion is really just the tip of the iceberg and the topic is complex and nuanced and I personally had heaps of thoughts and reactions to various components of this project and the discussions around it and I certainly haven't agreed with all of the ideas expressed but I really think that's the point the whole point of the project was to be a provocation a prod and it's sometimes uncomfortable to start to untangle some of the big and very powerful systems that actually enable and underpin the world that we live in, this often destructive world, this capitalist society. Of course, as ever, I will acknowledge that Saltgrass is produced on Jara Country and the panel discussion that we're going to hear today was conducted on Jara Country. The Jajawurrung have been zero-waste ecosystem guardians and custodians of this land for countless generations and continue to lead the way and generously share their wisdom on how to live here better. They lived in a moneyless society in abundance and balance with nature for countless generations. I give thanks to them and honour elders past and present. Always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Salt. Salt. of the earth. Salt. 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 Grassroots. 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 Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com. We're here to talk about money, mostly, and lots of related things. And money's a weird, it's a weird subject. You know, in some ways it's kind of taboo, right? I, I was thinking on my bike riding on the way here that 
I don't know how much money most of my friends earn, right? Because we don't talk about it. You don't say, you know, some of them I know because you're sort of close enough to have that conversation or maybe because they work in the same field as you or for the most part, we don't talk about it. We don't talk about how much money we earn. We don't kind of necessarily talk about with each other monetary things. Maybe you'll talk about how much money you can save buying something or how cheap something is at some place, right? Maybe, maybe that conversation happens about money or how expensive things are these days or, geez, you know, petrol. But there's sort of certain areas of money that are kind of off the radar, right? We don't, that, that we don't talk about. And that's partly because money is, it is a sort of societal ranking thing that goes on with money. And we don't want to rank it, it ourselves against our friends. We don't want to sort of be exposed to that idea of, oh, wow, you, my friend earns twice as much as I do. Or, you know, I don't know, there's this kind of funny sense around money. You know, and there, there's lots of expressions around money, like money makes the world go around. And then there's money's the root of all evil. And, you know, I'm an economist. And the truth is that, that most economists don't really understand how money works. I think I under, sort of learnt, learnt about money and how it works after studying economics from people who work in banking and finance. Right? Those are the people who understand how money works, generally. Most of the money that we use is created by banks, by private banks. And they just create it by, by typing numbers into computers. You make a loan when you, when, you, when you successfully apply for a loan. People think that, that you know, we deposit our savings in the bank and the bank lends those back out. That's the kind of naive version. Then there's the economic textbook version, which is the, the sort of thing called fractional reserve banking, where they can lend, each bank lends a part of that out, that gets deposited in another bank, and part of that gets deposited, and, and there's sort of this multiplier effect of money. That's not even right. You know, the banks just create the money on the spot. Have you ever heard of anybody applying for a loan? And the bank said, oh, you know, you, you check all the right boxes, you're, you're good for the credit, we know you can pay it back, but we haven't got any money at the moment. Right? <laughs> Nobody's ever heard of that happening. Could right? be seen. Could be seen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because they could just type it into the, into the computer keyboard, right? I mean, who decides who's allowed to do that? Who, a banking licence. Who gives out banking licence? APRA. So, yeah, that's a complicated question. There's a, there's a lot behind that. And maybe the level of detail we don't necessarily need to go into tonight. But government organisation, the Australian Prudential Regulatory Authority, who regulate banks... And so they set the rules about, you know, sort of how much, how confident banks need to be that you can pay it back, the sort of stress testing that banks are supposed to do to tell, you know, if interest rates go up, whether you can still repay it. There's lots of rules around when banks can and can't make loans, but those rules get gamed as well. So, you know, they're particularly by mortgage brokers. Um, Anyway, that's a sort of, you know, there's there's a lot of complexity sitting behind this, but it's, it's the banking license that allows them to to do that. So, you know, as I was saying, most economists don't really understand how money works. The bankers do. And, and most of our economic models, like the models used by Treasury and so on, kind of assume money away, right? Because money is just the thing that helps us to make transactions about real things in the economy. And debt cancels itself out. You know, you create a, um, an asset on one side and a, and a liability on the other side of the balance sheet and they cancel each other out. That's the loan and the uh, mortgage, so the, 
banks give money, but they also create a mortgage. Those two things cancel each other out, just like they were saying in the film. When you pay it back, the money disappears. So most of the models assume money away. It's not kind of part of how they think about it, but money is actually critical. And so we need to be putting that back into the conversation about who gets to create money, where it comes from, who uses it, who gets to stockpile it, what, what having piles of money means, and kind of how we measure wealth and, and value in society. You know, those are, these are all such important questions that I think this exhibition, you know, to the, to the credit of Jody and Dale and Anne who've, who've put this together, asks all those questions, right? What is this money thing? Who makes it? Why do they get to make it? If they get to make it, why can't we make it? Right? And that's what this is about here. It's like, why not? If there are unemployed people and there's valuable work that needs doing and the only thing that's missing from that is money to put the work together with the unemployed people, money's just a made-up thing, right? Maybe we should make some up. So I want to go to our panellists now and maybe a, a sort of just if you have reflections, particularly on, on what was raised in the film, if you've got any thoughts about what was in the film and what they said about local currencies or local economies or mm. if anyone wants to volunteer. Carl looks like he's I'm ready. next in line, maybe I do it. We say linear, being economist, being uh, somewhat <laughs> rational. But uh, for me, I liked uh, Michael Schumann's line in there that local currency is the great job creator. And when you see that centralised currency, the, the typical understanding of money, that's a real top-down delivery of currency. And often that goes straight into the mainstream market. But, of course, our local currencies when they do get up, um, are bottom up. And so that's where, uh, you know, you're kind of struck by this, this feeling that, jeez, all I really need are my hands, my skills, and something, some medium of exchange that other people will have trust in, and we can create our own little, you know, micro-economy, and from there things can grow. But for you know, so many years in my 20s, I was underemployed and I was like, God, this is crazy. You know, what, can, um, what can I do with my time that's productive? And there wasn't that, that incentive, that magnet to, to get me out into the, the real world and interacting with people. And um, yeah, that's one of the, the big advantages of local currency is it can help grease the wheels of those um, interactions in society where someone might have a totally different requirement to um, another person but uh, someone pops up in the middle who can do both those jobs and it, it really gets um, gets local uh, local movement within our, our community and yeah you know that license to print money. What a great, what a great rort that would be if you, you had that license. We do, Tia. Yeah, there it is, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I can't <laughs> wait to hear how uh, Mount Alex can help uh, bring this into play. Well, I just need to say, I'm, I guess I'm not really. I am representing council, but I'm not representing the the underlying kind of values of council, just kind of putting that on the table. But I'm really, it's a, just an interesting discussion from a, I guess from somebody who's not an economist, the only one on the panel who's not an economist. Um, and 
for me, it's kind of where does value sit and how much value do we prescribe to an object or a thing? Or, you know, so we've been, even the art to me um, as this project is, is interesting because we've already prescribed this, you know, a number one is worth $10 because we know what $10 is worth and five is worth $50 and we know what that's worth in my head because that'll buy me X or, but it's like, I really like that how we can start to really challenge that as a, just through our thought processes, like what's it worth? Like it's only worth what we prescribe to that. Like what's a piece of art worth? What's a relationship worth? What's a home worth? You know, um, it's made me think about all these things. I have more questions than I have even statements, to be honest. It's really, um, it's very provocative, the whole concept. Yeah, I mean, we all, I think we all have more questions than we have answers about yeah, this, yeah. even those of us who've been thinking about it for a long time. And, and the question of value is, is such an important one. You know, this, this is something my, my other hat on, my, my Centre for Policy Development work is about integrating well-being into government decision-making, right? And oh. you might think, well, what are governments for if they're not there for the well-being of the population, right? <laughs> but why is that even an issue? It's an issue because government decision-making is made based around value. And most the easiest way to determine value is through a dollar value, giving a dollar value to everything, you know, cost-benefit analysis, such a kind of critical government decision-making tool. But, of course, how, how does the government make a, a sort of serious cost-benefit decision between you know, a measure that might reduce, reduce youth suicide or something that improves aged care, mm. right? They do apply dollar values to those things, right? There's these things called quality-adjusted life years, yeah, it's, it's, which, which, is, which is given a dollar value. They do that, but how they do that and how they give the actual dollar value to it is just kind of made up. Right? It's just somebody going, yeah, I reckon it's probably about this. Anyway, I've said enough. Anitra, did you, did you have any reflections on the film or any comment on, yeah, yeah. on what's been said? Um, an important aspect of the film is that it was produced in 2015 and that was six or seven years ago. And um, if you go and have a look on the internet at Wikipedia or websites of these currencies, for instance... The Stroud Pound, Bristol Pound, um, Brixton Pound, and Totnes Pound, only one of them still exists. And that one that still exists is actually turning itself into a kind of digital currency, like with a platform and stuff like that. Um, And uh, one of them actually sort of died almost 10 years ago. So... um, it's very interesting just to see some of the analyses there and some of the explanations of what's happened to the currencies. And uh, one of them is that it's not actually the money itself, which is being magical. It's that people have been encouraged to act more locally in their economy. So what is probably most important is the room in there 
which is actually talking about local economies, which we could do actually without, uh, without an alternative currency anyway. Um, so that's one, one part of it. And I suppose the other side of that, it's kind of like the other side of the coin, you know, is that, again, the money itself is actually not doing anything at all. It's what we're actually producing. So when you talk about having money, but it's the actual work that that money is generating, that, and it's a human being who's doing that work, so that we can actually take the money out of the picture. And it's, it's got to do with trust. And the most important thing here is what is actually um, motivating people and what is actually creating production and distribution. And my argument is, is, is that actually we've given over to money and to the private property system our capacity as a whole community to decide what we actually want to produce to fulfil our basic needs. Um, so, yeah, money raises all the kinds of questions um, that people have been talking about. Yeah, it sure does. And, and I think, you know, one of the issues and one of the ways that things have radically changed, um, even since the time it's on this board, I don't know how many people have had a chance to have a look at this, but over here is a sort of a little historical snapshot of what this local economy used to be like. And is talking about, um, you know, the diversity of things that used to be made and produced here. And, and the, the local economy was relatively self-sustaining, of course, before that was much more self-sustaining when Indigenous people were living here, um, which is another question entirely. But, but also one that we should keep in mind. You know, there's so much to be learned from indigenous culture in particular and how the culture developed around uh, the, the sort of needs and capacity of country to sustain us. That's a, hopefully we'll come to that later. But, but this is the a sort of, you know, early post-colonial um, economy which was relatively self-sustaining, you know. That they, so many things that were, were required here were made here. And I think there's a very interesting kind of transition that's happening right now where we've got, you know, we've got now cheese being made here and beer being made here and um, chocolates and wine and, you know, but, but they're all kind of niche relatively expensive um, kind of made for the, the people with, um, with money who live here and for tourists, right? So you, if, if you're on a tight budget, you're not going to any of those places that are accepting this coin, right? That's right, you go to Aldi. You go to Aldi. I mean, I saw something the other day from somebody saying, oh, I was forced to shop at Coles the other day and I can't, believe how, I can't imagine how people live having to shop at Coles. This was somebody shopped at Aldi, right? So that's it's another step again, right? So, so that's a real question about, about 
our local economy and how we have we've kind of pushed prices down by exporting our costs in a way. So cheap labour on the on farms where the supermarkets have power to force labour down. We can import labour from other countries and then exploit that labour. Or we just buy stuff from overseas, right, where labour's cheaper and environmental standards aren't strong. So this is a real question for this panel and this currency and for money is about, you know, is there a way we can use a local currency to subsidise local production so that it is affordable for local people. So we can make things here, we can grow things here, and, and people who are on the lowest incomes can afford those things. Because the last thing we want to do is create some system that's just for the elite, right? Just for people who have money, just for white-collar people, you know, people like us in the room, essentially, right? We don't want to create a system like that. Yeah, and that's why we need competition. And when the currency's locked up, um, there's less of that flexibility because some people can produce things just with their time. Um, and when I finished my economics degree way back in the early 90s, there were two um, barter organisations. Uh, one was called Barter Card, and that was quite big. I don't know if anyone remembers that. And there was another one called Trade Bank. Well, that was my first job, Warwick. That's where my economics degree got me in, in mid-93. And there I was trying to help get this uh, local currency. It wasn't quite a let system. There was a, a central registry to record um, debits and credits. But the thing I quickly learnt about it was that there, it was very easy to get people on board who were masseurs and hairdressers. They pretty much just had to use their time. And it turned out that they would all go and visit the one restaurant near their suburb or the one mechanic who was involved in Trade Bank, and that would drain their cash. Now, um, you know, that sort of brought to my awareness that in order for these currencies to survive in a bit more of a long-term perspective, as Anitra's hinted at, needs to be some weighting in this barter-type currency um, so that the masseur's earnings perhaps are not as much as that restaurateur's and that incentivises other restaurateurs to come on board. And then the next problem was them having their suppliers come on board this supply chain. So you very quickly become aware of those you know, real raw basics of how the economy works and how um, important it is to try and push... Um, some sort of local currency further up uh, uh, the horizontal um, supply chain and vertically as well. So, um, yeah, there was a lot I took from that. And hopefully in this digital age, um, it'd be great to see a decent um, uh, local currency app come about with these sort of weightings on board. And, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that some of those incredible... Uh, commons pioneers within the online community can um, step into this space and help bring an app like that um, into, into play. Maybe they're already there. I mean, does anyone know? Is there an app out there already for, you know, it's beautiful to have coins, but it is a, a digital age and maybe there are some advantages there to that too for it. So it's spreading a little bit out of 
that immediate circle within your local economy. Mm. The community exchange system is digital. So the community exchange system is a um, global system. Uh, I start, it's all online, it's all the records are online, the transactions are online. And it does have a mobile site, it's not actually an app. There, it really needs upgrade to modern sort of technology. Um, and there isn't, it's all been run by volunteers ever since, it's 20 years. Um, there's hundreds of groups all over the world and we have a Lianganuk community exchange which is now, has got 40 members. Um, and yeah, I mean, I agree with what Carl says, it, it, it does attract a lot of healers, basically. Um, However, there, is, there really is a, a broad range of, of services there. If you take 40 people, um, like, you know, whoever's in the room, can you imagine the, the wealth of skills and experience that, that we all have together? So there's a lot of potential for trading. And it's a start. And what I like about it is... Um, you don't need cash to start. You immediately get, um, you're given a zero balance, but you can go into debit or credit and you're encouraged to start trading straight away because you going into debit means that there's trading happening on the exchange even though, and somebody else is going to credit. And the ideal is to stay around zero basically. So you're trading, you're, buying as much as you're selling of goods and services. Um, really, because it's been volunteer, run by volunteers, the software is not, you know, it's not sexy. It's, it's kind of a bit archaic. Um, but if that was upgraded, I reckon it could, it could be sexy. <laughs> the idea is sexy. <laughs> The Peer-to-Peer -peer Foundation um, has established, um, yeah, different, there are different forms of uh, currency apps and they're used um, in different places. I know in Catalan, around Barcelona, there's a whole lot of exchanges with um, thousands and thousands of people involved. But they use a multiplicity of different currencies too. So that's a bit complex. Yeah. Too complex to explain? No, not really. Um, I mean, it's, it's not. They all operate pretty much like monies. Okay. So you still come back to the fact that you're creating prices for things. Mm. And you still actually have some kind of um, way in which the different currencies interact with one another. Um, so there's a sort of exchange rate. And I think that's problematic. Um, I th because I think that um, a lot of people do work and they don't get paid for doing it. And some people, like doctors, get piles of money for the kind of work that they do. And other people who may be in hospitality industry, 
get shit money and they're working just as hard and everything else. Now, that's inequality. And I think the biggest challenges that we've got in the world today are inequities between people and unsustainabilities in terms of nature, ecology. And I can't see how an alternative money, specifically because it's a money, is going to change that. And that, that's, what I, that's what I think that we should be aiming to do, is to diminish inequities and to be more sustainable in terms of our ecosystems. So what do you think about like the universal wage, that kind of... The only way I think ultimately that we could do that is by, as a local community, trying to rely as much on collective self-provisioning as possible, that is making our own foods, um, uh, distributing food between us and the same with housing um, and clothes, all of our basic needs, okay? I, I don't know. One of my next projects is to try and work out how in Mount Alexander Shire, how, how sufficient we already are and then how could we easily be more sufficient just by concentrating on working in particular ways and using resources we've already got. Because a lot of people say, uh, you really need to have a lot of exchange happening, a lot of trade, it needs to be over a big area. But I don't think that's quite the case because I've lived in and stayed in intentional communities of, say, 100, 200 people, and they've been able to be collectively self-sufficient around 70 or 80 per cent. And if we do that, we we can monitor very easily how much we're exploiting our local area. Um, and if we start off with all making a kind of list, say you did it every six months or 12 months, of your household and what it needs, and then working out how we can collectively provision ourselves in those particular ways, um, and so you don't need a money or market because you've worked it out in the first place. It's like it's production on demand, which we do even in capitalism to some extent. You know, don't print a book, a whole you know thousand mm. books. What you do is you wait for people to send in the orders and then you print them. Okay, so it's a little bit like that, um, and. At this point in history, where we are so outrageously unsustainable and inequities are so vast and they're completely locked into private property, which has to do with monetary exchange, I think that unless there's numerous communities right over the world doing exactly that, I can't see how we can get out of the situation we're in. Yeah, that's... Um it's a bit gloomy, um, <laughs> and, and you know, it reminds me of a <clears throat> of a silly old joke, which is, you know, there's these people driving around outback Australia, and, and they're completely lost, right? Before the days of phone reception, or maybe there's no phone reception, and <clears throat> and they're trying to get to Sydney, but they're just they're completely lost, 
and they see a farmer, you know, leaning on his fence post, and they and they pull up and they say, "Oh, which way to Sydney? How, how do you get to Sydney from here?" And he goes, "Well, if I was you, I wouldn't start from here." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. How, you know, we're, we're in a situation where we live in in, in massive populations where there's anonymity and you know I mean this is a pretty small place right so we can do things like this we can have these sorts of conversations we can even stretch ourselves out to the broader community of people who wouldn't come to something like this and you know there's potential right to to do something novel and different here but Melbourne even Bendigo right in in terms of the sort of anonymity that's there and, and the capacity to have something like you're talking about with small communities who know each other, who can see what each other are doing, who, <clears throat> and there are of course people who go, my God, I don't want to live in something like that anyway, right? I don't want to be in a place where, where because conformity gets enforced and you know, all those kinds of things that happen in, but it's, in but small places. But conformity isn't necessarily enforced as much as it is in this society where you have to wear makeup if, you, if you're in retail industry and you have to wear a suit and you have to, all of those things. Sure. All of those people, the guys wear dresses and all kinds of things. You know, like anything goes. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah. yeah. But, but, you know, so that's, that's the role that money plays, right, ultimately, is about a sort of value exchange between, between strangers. Mm. But, yeah, uh, you and know, we've made what, ourselves all into strangers. Yeah. yeah. You can start small, like starting small is really, really important Mm. and this is a starting small project. I was just sort of thinking about like at council, for instance, we have a procurement policy that says we will buy local first. And so you have to, if if you're buying something and it's not local within the Shire, you have to actually put in a reason why and you can't get it here. And so there's kind of the next level of that of kind of letting the community know, oh, I can't actually get, here's a business opportunity, you can't actually get X, X here. Who wants to create X that I can buy? Because councils, you know, spends a lot of money and we've got a lot of input into the community. So starting small, just like that, is really important. Yeah. And I think that's... Start anywhere. Yeah, <laughs> start. One of the things that we need with local currencies is for there to be a velocity of money moving around this economy. And what I saw in Trade Bank and what I've seen through Let Systems is that often that restaurateur will end up with tons of local currency. He only needs one massage, you know, a month. Only <laughs> uh, needs one hairdresser, you know, a month. Maybe he's like me; he doesn't even need it, but. Um, yeah, there's got to be lessons that we can pick up from history. And so one of the best um, monetary um, uh, reforms, it was a short-lived one, um, I think it happened in Austria. There was a guy named Silvio uh, Gazelle who came up with this concept of demarage, which meant that every month that coin or that let's currency you had depreciated by 1%. So the longer you held it, the less it was worth. And so this is kind of part of the challenge we have within society is that the wealthy hoard all this money. Um, 
increasingly don't invest that in productive business and employ people. They pile it into real estate and prices go through the roof. So we're all stuck on this treadmill trying to um, pay our rent, um, including our bosses who face higher rents. And as rents go up, there's less for wage growth. So, you know, that's what I'd love to see Sally McManus and the labor movement really pushing is addressing um, this burdening um, property bubble that continues. And, you know, I, I, I love your example, Anitra, but those 200 people on that land, I bet, did not have the pressure of having to pay this increasing rent. Yeah, that's, that's right. Money causes that pressure. Yeah. And the point is, if you have one of those monies that um, decreases in by a percentage in terms of its value, the problem is you get more overconsumption. And we, that's the worst thing for us now in it. our mm. society. It might mm. be okay somewhere else, but that's, that, that's not good. There's another reason but, um, that I would give for the current rise in house prices. And that is, is, is that government has pushed out piles of money in terms of the stimulus for COVID over the last couple of years. And it's not going very far because we've got supply chain blockages with getting cars into the country or parts of cars into the country, all kinds of things, because we rely hellishly on Chinese labour and all of those kinds of things, which is something that also that we don't discuss, which is really important. Yeah. That money, I believe, a lot of it is driving the house prices up. And it's ridiculous, yes. And I don't believe in private property. We could share houses. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, go on. Uh, I might just jump to kind of back, back to the currency and back to the idea of, you know, how it might work here. You know, there's, there's, there's one little kind of round circle over there with words on it about how it might work here. Um, and, and, you know, one suggestion that I made is that we, we create the currency. This is just a kind of model, right? It's an idea about how it could potentially work. We create the currency. We pay local unemployed people to improve the, the quality, the energy efficiency and, and the comfort of our houses, right? So there's, there's relatively simple relatively low-skilled things that people can do that are really valuable and really important. Draft-proofing is one of them, right? Draft-proofing is sort of the low-hanging fruit of, of energy efficiency. Insulation, despite its bad name with the pink bats debacle and stuff and all that, right? Well-trained people can do, you know, with, with a relatively small amount of training, can do a good job of insulating a home. So you could create a currency, pay locally employed people to do this kind of work on people's houses, the houses then, the, the owners of those houses then have a, a new little additional rates bill that, that goes to local council that's payable in the local currency, only payable in the local currency. So they're, they're essentially repaying the cost of the insulation with the savings they get because their energy bills are going down because of the work that's been done in their houses, with the savings that they get. But they've got to pay for it in local currency. So you've got a source for the currency, you're just creating it out of nothing like the banks do. But you've also got a sink for it, which is going back into council. And so you, with, with this sort of balance in place, you don't end up creating so much money in the system that it's not worth anything. You've always got somewhere for it to go. And with those council rates being payable in local currency, you're underpinning the, you're underpinning the value. It has value. 
the value is sort of created by the, the, the rates, the taxation. And then, once it's got value and that's underpinned, you can use it for all kinds of other things, right? Then becomes a valuable. People recognise its value, they use it for local trading. You can p potentially, depending on the dynamics, create the money for other things like environmental works to pay people to do those sorts of works because there's, you know, we know that it has value. And so once that, you get local power, then you pay for your power bill out of that too. That's right. So we have a, we have a local community-owned power company, right? That's part, yeah. of the, it's part of the imagined model. And, and you can pay for that in local currency. And people are producing most of the power on their roofs. It's being, the, power, the energy is being stored locally. It's being shared locally. You can give it away. You can sell it for local currency. So, you know, it's all kind of integrated. There's a, there's a sort of, I don't know if there's still copies left, are there, in, in there of the, um, the Wararak economy, which is kind of a vision of how this kind of thing might work locally. Um, so that's just one model, right? It's an idea. It's a sort of provocation, I suppose, about how we could use local currency to to rejuvenate this local mm. economy, make it sustainable, um, and, and to be able to use that power of currency creation for things that the community decides are valuable. But see, in the first instance, if I'm a worker and I get paid silver wattles, like, the very first things that I need to think about is, by, is yeah, paying my water bill, um, buying my food. If I go to the IGA or something... <clears throat> The silver wattles are going to what? Go out of the country? I don't know. Well, well this is, is the that, point, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, a, it's a it's a, it's a big conversation, and you, and you're you're pulling up some of the really interesting parts of that. That actually, there's a very big chicken and egg conversation here. Yeah. You have to line up a whole lot of local businesses before the whole thing starts, who can provide what people need. But the thing that Carl pulls up is the big one, right? Housing mm -hmm. and rent. And it's all a commons. That license to create money is a commons granted by the government. Yeah. You know, the license to privatise the value of living in a community is seen in land price. And um, in the early 1920s, the German economy was put under huge pressure by the, the Allies' reparations payments. And basically, they had to sell all their gold and they had nothing to back their currency. Inflation started to take off and their economy really was suffering. Um, you know, it was like wheelbarrow loads for bread and all sorts of problems happening on the inflation front. Um, that was before, this is the first round of mini hyperinflation. They, it came back later, but that for a year, this rising value of land became the credit creation process and they backed their currency not by gold but by the land value. Yeah. And so um, they only created an amount of currency that matched the growth of uh, land and then you paid that back. So it came out of the economy again, just like um, Warwick and I have been talking about doing with this local currency here. Um, because one of the challenges you need is to give that currency um, sort of a, a sovereign value so that people have trust in it. And when you can pay taxes in it, um, as much as we despise that, but it does um, give it real value. And from that, um, we, can, we can quickly make decisions on where we want to spend money. So Anitra, I know you would have... Um, uh, probably problems with that, but I just want to challenge you with this question. I was in a forum recently and someone said, money, 
Why do we need it? And I said, oh, do you like meetings? Do you like lots and lots of meetings? Because the, the monetary system makes millions of decisions every single second, depending on our particular values and how much we want to pay for that particular product. But if we had to sit down and decide how much that value was, it would be an hour long meeting just on one product. So it's a, it's a challenge how you, you sort of juggle those two worlds. Yeah, I think that we probably, um, probably end up about a third of the economy is just on financial transactions and accountants and all of that kind of thing. So the decision-making actually does happen and we do pay for it in the prices that we pay for goods because that's all factored into it. And I would say that a lot of the time we go out into the market and some, a whole lot of other people have decided, and, and it's actually a minority of people, okay, who direct firms and manage firms, they decide what's produced, they decide exactly how it's produced, and they decide where it's going to go. And when I go out there, that's what I'm faced with. Not my decisions, been no democratic choice in any of that process whatsoever. And every other person is faced with the same thing. And that's one of the reasons we all feel alienated and everything as well. It's that we're not making choices together. We're not deciding on those kinds of things. That's one of the reasons why worker cooperatives are a good idea, you know, in that people are making those decisions. I think that they're limited, but at least they're a step in the right direction. Yeah, yeah, well said, Nitra. I think, you know, there's, there's lots of talk about free markets and democracy and um, been given a wave. Uh, and um, you know, individual freedom, all these things, but, but the, the big corporations who dominate our economy are profoundly authoritarian, mm-hmm. right? They, they're command and control structures. They work from the top down, and so, you know, the, the sort of so-called free market is actually, as Anitra is kind of hinting at there, is, is, is very controlled by relatively few individuals. I don't know how many of you saw recently, there was, there was an article in the ABC... <clears throat> and some photographs of sort of piles, mountains of avocados that were thrown out, that were dumped basically by Australian growers because the big supermarkets suddenly discovered they could buy cheaper avocados at the moment from New Zealand. Right? So, so we imported all these avocados from New Zealand and the Australian avocados were just dumped. Now that's, that's madness. Mm. Mm. But that's our system, right? It's just, well, they're cheaper over there. And sure, these people have been supplying us with avocados for decades. But, we, you know, at a moment's notice, we, we chuck them out because we can go over there and get cheap ones. And what would have happened in New Zealand if, if we hadn't bought there? Yeah, very good question. Yeah. Yeah. These sort of cascading decisions. Exactly, yeah, yeah. 
In fact, there's been a lot of dumping of stuff um, and just ripping it out of the ground by farmers just because we haven't had um, overseas migrants or overseas workers coming in and there's no one to harvest things. And so just fields and fields and fields have just been, farmers have ripped them out or they haven't even, they haven't laid down the seed for things. And yeah, criminal waste, criminal waste. So I think, I mean, we've almost already started, but we've had the wave from Jodie to say it's time to to throw open to the floor for, for questions and have a bit more of a back and forth discussion. So there you go. That was Warwick Smith from the Castlemaine Institute, Carl Fitzgerald from Prosper Economics, Merrin Tinkle from the Mount Alexander Shire, and Anitra Nelson from the University of Melbourne. As I said at the start of the episode, this discussion is just the tip of the iceberg. The topic is complex and nuanced, and there are many more thinkers and resources out there if you want to explore it further. One recommendation I have is to get your hands on a copy of the book Donut Economics by Kate Raworth. It's very readable and she really looks at how our economic system formed in the first place and what we maybe need to do to be sustainable or to be able to live on this planet well. (laughs) Um, It's kind of a visionary piece and doesn't give a huge amount of concrete answers or solutions, but she does set out the problem really well about why our economic system as it stands, is not working. For those of you listening on the radio, please note that you can listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your preferred podcasting app or at saltgrasspodcast.com. You can follow us on the socials and you can subscribe to our email list to get reminders and updates about the show. This program was made possible with support from Main FM and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. I would also like to thank in this episode Kyla Brettel, who you might remember from an episode of Saltgrass called Endgame. She is also a climate audio storyteller. She was there that night helping me catch all the sounds. And afterwards, she also very kindly did a basic audio cleanup as well. So Kyla was a huge help in getting this episode out. My name is Ali Hanley. Thanks for listening. Salt, Grassroots. Grassroots. Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Salt Grass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com.